means I love you in dinosaur. Means I love you in dinosaur. Welcome back to Mind Wave. What's your favorite thing to do while we're stuck in the house? To watch video. Watch videos. Watch what kind of videos do you watch? That. Look. Watch it. Game videos? And then, then, then he died. Oh. Look at it. <laughs> okay. He got blood all over him. Oh. You've been watching it a lot? Yeah. I was finding it. You were finding it? Yeah. That was my favorite video. Favorite video? Yeah. yeah. Your favorite videos are game videos of other people playing games? You don't like watching, you don't like playing the games yourself? No. No. Okay. Welcome to Space Radio, the only radio. Monsanto Corporation proudly presents This Week in History. This Week in History. On the 1st of May, 1969, Mr. Fred Rogers testified before the United States Senate subcommittee that was considering cutting the funding for public television. The following is the archival footage from that historic event. The U.S. Senate held hearings about funding for the newly formed Corporation for Public Broadcasting. A $20 million grant proposed by former President Lyndon Johnson was in jeopardy. President Richard Nixon wanted that amount cut in half. The hearings were chaired by Senator John Pastore. All right, Rogers, you got the floor. <laughs> Senator Pastore. This is a philosophical statement and would take about 10 minutes to read, so I'll not do that. Uh, one of the first things that a child learns in a healthy family is trust. And I trust what you have said that you will read this. It's very important to me. I care deeply about children. My first children... Will it make you happy if you read it? I'd just like to talk about it, if it's all right. All right. Okay. My first children's program was on WQED 15 years ago, and its budget was $30. Now, with the help of the Sears Roebuck Foundation and National Educational Television, as well as all of the affiliated stations, each station pays to show our program. It's a unique kind of funding in educational television. With this help, now our program has a budget of $6,000. It may sound like quite a difference, but $6,000 pays for less than two minutes of cartoons. Two minutes of animated 
what I sometimes say, bombardment. I'm very much concerned, as I know you are, about what's being delivered to our children in this country. And I've worked in the field of child development for six years now, trying to understand the inner needs of children. We deal with such things as, as the inner drama of childhood. We don't have to bop somebody over the head to make him, to, to make drama on the screen. We deal with such things as getting a haircut, or the feelings about brothers and sisters, and the kind of anger that arises in simple family situations. And we speak to it constructively. How long the program is it? It's a half hour every day. Most channels schedule it in the, in the noontime as well as in the evening. Uh, WETA here has scheduled it in the late afternoon. Could we get a copy of this so that we can see it? Maybe not today, but I'd like to see the program. I'd like very much for I'd you to like see I'd like to it. see the program itself, or any one of them, you see. We, we made a hundred programs for EEN, the Eastern Educational Network, and then when the money ran out, people in Boston and Pittsburgh and Chicago all came to the fore and said, we've got to have more of this neighborhood expression of care. And this is what, this is what I give. I give an expression of care every day to each child to help him realize that he is unique. I end the program by saying, you've made this day a special day by just your being you. There's no person in the whole world like you, and I like you just the way you are. And I feel that if we in public television can only make it clear that feelings are mentionable and manageable, we will have done a great service for mental health. Uh, I think that it's much more dramatic that two men could be working out their feelings of anger. Much more dramatic than showing something of gunfire. I'm constantly concerned about what our children are seeing. And for 15 years I have tried in this country and Canada to present what I feel is a meaningful expression of care. Do you narrate it? I'm the host, yes. And I do all the puppets, and I write all the music, and I write all the scripts. Well, I'm supposed to be a pretty tough guy, and this is the first time I've had goosebumps for the last two days. Well, I'm grateful, not only for your goosebumps, but for your interest in, in our kind of communication. Could I tell you the words of one of the songs which I feel is very important? Yes. This has to do with that good feeling of control which I feel that the children need to know is there. And it starts out, what do you do with the mad that you feel? And that first line came straight from a child. I work with children doing puppets in, in very personal communication with small groups. What do you do with the mad that you feel? When you feel so mad you could bite. When the whole wide world seems oh so wrong, and nothing you do seems very right. What do you do? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? 
Do you round up friends for a game of tag or see how fast you go? It's great to be able to stop when you've planned a thing that's wrong and be able to do something else instead and think this song. I can stop when I want to, can stop when I wish, can stop, stop, stop any time. And what a good feeling to feel like this and know that the feeling is really mine. Know that there's something deep inside that helps us become what we can. For a girl can be someday a lady and a boy can be someday a man. I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. <clears throat> Looks like you just earned the $20 million. <laughs> <laughs> Excerpt from The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett. Chapter 5 The Cry in the Corridor At first, each day which passed by for Mary Lennox was exactly like the others. Every morning she awoke in her tapestried room and found Martha kneeling upon the hearth building her fire. Every morning she ate her breakfast in the nursery which had nothing amusing in it. And after each breakfast she gazed out of the window across to the huge moor which seemed to spread out on all sides and climb up to the sky. And after she had stared for a while she realized that if she did not go out she would have to stay in and do nothing. And so she went out. She did not know that this was the best thing she could have done. And she did not know that. When she began to walk quickly or even run along the paths and down the avenue, she was stirring her slow blood and making herself stronger by fighting with the wind which swept down from the moor. She ran only to make herself warm, and she hated the wind which rushed at her face and roared and held her back as if it were some giant she could not see. But the big breaths of rough fresh air blown over the heather filled her lungs with something which was good for her whole thin body and whipped some red color into her cheeks and brightened her dull eyes when she did not know anything about it. But after a few days spent almost entirely out of doors she wakened one morning knowing what it was to be hungry. And when she sat down to her breakfast she did not glance disdainfully at her porridge and push it away. But took up her spoon and began to eat it and went on eating it until her bowl was empty. An excerpt from The Velveteen Rabbit or how Toys Become Real, by Marjorie Williams. Here, was once a velveteen rabbit, and in the beginning he was really splendid. He was fat and bunchy, as a rabbit should be. His coat was spotted brown and white. He had real thread whiskers, and his ears were lined with pink sateen. On Christmas morning, when he sat wedged in the top of the boy's stocking, with a sprig of holly between his paws, the effect was charming. There were other things in the stocking, nuts and oranges and a toy engine, and chocolate almonds and a clockwork mouse, but the rabbit was quite the best of all. For at least two hours the boy loved him, and then aunts and uncles came to dinner, and there was a great rustling of tissue paper and unwrapping of parcels. And in the excitement of looking at all the new presents the velveteen rabbit was forgotten. For a long time he lived in the toy cupboard or on the nursery floor, and no one thought very much about him. He was naturally shy, and being only made of velveteen, some of the more expensive toys quite snubbed him. The mechanical toys were very superior, and looked down upon everyone else. They were full of modern ideas, a 
and pretended they were real. The model boat, who had lived through two seasons and lost most of his paint, caught the tone from them and never missed an opportunity of referring to his rigging in technical terms. The rabbit could not claim to be a model of anything, for he didn't know that real rabbits existed. He thought they were all stuffed with sawdust like himself, and he understood that sawdust was quite out of date and should never be mentioned in modern circles. Even Timothy, the jointed wooden lion, who was made by the disabled soldiers, and should have had broader views, but on airs and pretended he was connected with government. Between them all the poor little rabbit was made to feel himself very insignificant and commonplace, and the only person who was kind to him at all was the skin horse. The skin horse tells his story. The skin horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was so old that his brown coat was bald in patches and showed the seams underneath, and most of the hairs in his tail had been pulled out to string bead necklaces. He was wise, for he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive to boast and swagger, and by and by break their mainsprings and pass away, and he knew that they were only toys, and would never turn into anything else. For nursery magic, is very strange and wonderful, and only those playthings that are old and wise and experienced like the skin horse understand all about it. What is real? Asked the rabbit one day, when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender, before Nana came to tidy the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick out handle? Real isn't how you were made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up? He asked, or bit by bit. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily, or have sharp edges, or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you are real you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. Except to people who don't understand. But these things don't matter at all, because once you are real you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. Except to people who don't understand. Now it's time for all good men. for all good men to come to the aid of their country.
Just sample. He's one of my all-time favorite creators, and his soundboard is magic. Answer correctly and win a prize. Yeah. The prize is a correct answer. Oh, Tag us on Twitter at Mindwave Podcast. Patreon.com/slash/Mindwave. Come on, shot! Break for 30 seconds. How are you liking these transitions? Welcome to Space Radio, the only radio in space. Introducing a revolutionary invention with the power to change the world. Carl Sagan's Cosmically Conscious Meat Computer. It's a computer made of electrified meat contained in a cranium. Carl Sagan's Cosmically Conscious Meat Computer. Available inside a skull near you. Is this fun yet? Fuck. Wait, wait, and, and how old are you? 
How old are you? How old are you? Um, six. Okay. So wait, you have to tell everyone that because I, I, if I repeated it, you'd think I'm lying. Okay, go. Love those fractions. Yes. Okay, if you're asking those questions now, you'll be the deepest thinking adult there ever was. So, so what is the meaning of life? I think people ask that question on the assumption that meaning is something you can look for and that, oh, I found it. Here's the meaning. Here's what it is. I've been looking for it. Okay? And it doesn't consider the possibility that maybe meaning in life is something that you create, you manufacture for yourself and for others. And so when I think of meaning in life, I ask, uh, have I learned something today that I didn't know yesterday? Bringing me a little closer to knowing all that can be known in the universe. Just a little closer. However far away all the knowledge sits, I'm a little closer. If I live a day and I don't know a little more that day than the day before, I think I wasted that day. So the people who at the end of the school year say, this summer I don't have to think anymore. I'm thinking, what is, like, what? <laughs> what? The, to learn is to become closer to nature. And to learn how things work gives you power to influence events, gives you power to help people who may need it, power to help yourselves, to shape a trajectory. So when I think of what is the meaning of life, to me that's not an eternal unanswerable question. To me that is in arm's reach of me every day. And so for you, at age six and three quarters, I, may I suggest that for you, you should explore nature as much as you possibly can. And occasionally that means getting your clothes dirty because you might want to jump into puddles and your parents don't want you to do that. You tell them that I gave you permission. You're still a kid, and, and, and part of being a kid is exploring the world around you, and all, all the way the laws of nature influence that. So take different pots of pants and hit them with a spoon, and they'll all sound different. They'll sound different with different spoons. Some pans are aluminum, some are steel, some are copper. They'll sound different, and that's kind of a fun experiment. And most parents will say, don't do that, you're getting them dirty. Stop doing that, you're making too much noise. You tell them, then why did you have me in the first place? Because, yeah, just to remind them that they didn't have kids so that they could keep having a neat house, okay? Because kids make things messy. And there's a reason why they make things messy, because they're exploring the world around them. And so you have my permission. Now, if you get in trouble, uh, I'm not going to be around. I'm not going to be back. But we have witnesses here, right? Okay. So. And now, an excerpt from the Holodomouse. 
a performance by the Stargazer Virtual Community Theater. The magical 2020 apocalyptic Christmas acid trip of the imagination you never asked for, but absolutely deserve. Listen for free at studiostargazer.org slash theater. And a very special thanks to Katrina Stone, whose song we added a bunch of drunken stone singing mice for no reason other than joy. We don't want to grow up either. We're too young to talk about forever. Talk about the weather. To know any better. I just want to laugh until I can't breathe. Midnight moonlight dancing. Never get enough sleep. Oh, the whole night through. And we Distant tumbling stars from the roof of our
is made possible by the generous support of Studio Stargazer and host of Mindwave, Phil Ord. Like on matters of science. And it, it, we're, we're at the point now where we, with everything we look at, we have to look at data. Uh, and I think that's just part of how civilization is going forward. And um, because right now people will believe whatever they want to believe with no real data backing, backing it up. You know, we're supposed to have gotten rid of slavery uh, back in the 1860s. And while I suppose it's true that, yes, we don't tie people to stakes and whip them, at least not legally anymore, we have wage slavery. And by that I mean, you're going to go to work. And if you don't go to work, and you don't find a way to earn some money, you're going to be homeless, you're going to be hungry, you're going to be freezing outside, you're not going to get the medical care you need, so you can do what we tell you. We don't know. What is your hard truth? Jesse Rogers. We are all like players of the game of Tetris that speeds up and speeds up, and you don't know exactly how it will end, but it will end. So the question is, what will you do with the time that you're given? How will you see yourself and all the other players? Humanity First recognizes that our species' greatest strength is our ability to cooperate as well as compete. Real <laughs> I mean, that's sort of your job, right? Ron Russell. Noticing where things arise from and depart to. Christy Powers. It's all right. It's all right. Scott Sentence. It's the human right to exist, and that's just, you know, if, if murder is wrong, then so is a lack of basic income. Additional thanks to our legacy supporters. Heather Cook. Rob J. Wilson. John Gleason, Julia May, David J.B., Nick Argon, Travis Meyer, a very special thanks to the Stargazers, Corey Wilcox, David Russell, Charlene Russell, Greg and Teresa Zimmer. <laughs> Teresa's going, really? Yes. Mindwave is produced by Studio Star Leave us a reading and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Share this show with a friend. 
Call in and share your voice. 602-456-2253. And if I didn't say studiostargazer.org enough times in this episode... Studio. 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 Stargazer. Done.